You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Well, if you have a Bible with you, if you'll make your way to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 5. Gospel according to Luke, chapter 5. Our verses for this morning's text is going to be verses 27 through 39. We are continuing on in our series, The Manger to the Throne. Today we are picking up where we left off last week. Luke, chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. Once you make your way there, I invite you to follow along now as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Beginning in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything. He rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, Can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is still with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. He will tear the new garment. Sorry. Let me read verse 36. He also told them a pair, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on the old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. There have been certain meals that I've had with different people over the years that are memorable to me. Memorable for a couple of reasons. Because the meal that I was having marked a special occasion, or 
the meal was memorable because of the person or the persons I was eating with. They were special to me. The most memorable meal for me personally was the first meal I ate with Amanda. We met for our first date at La Madeline restaurant in Plano, Texas. I asked her if she would have dinner with me. She met me there. Um, it, it still wasn't clear why I had asked her for dinner to dinner. And so that night I was to tell her why I was asking her out. And I remember as the dinner drew on, finding it harder to just say, here's why I invited you here in my voice. And I remember the entire night just running my fingers across the cup and just sweating profusely and finally got out the words, letting her know, hey, here's why I ask you to dinner. I will never forget the night we returned to La Madeline because that's where I proposed to Amanda. That was the best meal I've ever had. I don't know what I ate or if I ate. I really don't. I don't know what I ate or even if I ate. I just loved who I was with, and I loved the reason I was there. I actually remember my first meal with Amanda's dad. He wanted to meet the man who was interested in his baby girl. So he reached out to me and said, could you meet me for lunch? I said, yes. We met for lunch at the Golden Corral in Louisville, Texas. Now, here's what you need to know. He was a sheriff's detective from Denton County at the time, so he came to lunch with a gun on his hip. That lunch was memorable. But I do have to say this. He looks scary, but he's just really a big teddy bear. Um, so it was, it was a memorable lunch. I actually remember my first meal with Pastor Odom and Jake Lee. It was 2008. I met them at the Together for the Gospel in Louisville, Kentucky. We were there for this conference that was at the Galt House Hotel, and we met there for lunch so that I could talk with them about a possible internship after I finished the pastor's college. Now, I would imagine that everyone here over a certain age you have meals that you can call to mind that are memorable to you. See, in the passage I just read from here in Luke chapter 5, we hear about the first of many meals in which Jesus ate in people's homes. This is the first of many meals that Luke's going to record for us in which Jesus went into someone's home and he Ate with them. Now, here's a little FYI. This, this concept of table fellowship, it will be a major theme in Jesus' ministry, and it will be a major theme in Luke's gospel in particular. This is the first of many meals. So just pay attention to that and be aware that as we make our way through this book, we're going to come to many more settings like this. And I, I, I do believe that if we were to go back in time, we had the ability to do that, and we were to have met Levi, also known as Matthew, and we were to have asked him about this particular event, this meal with Jesus at his house, I can almost guarantee you he would light up 
and he would recount the events of that day as if it was yesterday. I don't think this meal was something Matthew ever forgot. See, what occurred at that meal and the conversation that took place in light of that meal, it serves us. I'm glad that God inspired Luke to record not only the events of this meal, but the conversations that took place because of this meal. Because of this passage, we have a better understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's why this passage is here. It actually serves us by teaching us what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, there are two reasons I believe this passage teaches us about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Here's the first reason. Notice that in both accounts, the Pharisees criticized the disciples of Jesus regarding their choices as they followed Jesus. Look at verse 30 and verse 33. In both of these sections... It's the disciples, not Jesus being criticized. It's the disciples of Jesus being criticized for following Jesus. But there's another reason I think this passage teaches us so much, some valuable lessons about discipleship. Notice how the first verse that opens up this passage, it tells us about the calling of this man named Levi or Matthew about his calling to be a disciple of Jesus. And then in verse 30, we hear about the disciples again. And then in verse 33, we hear about the disciples again. This passage is focused not necessarily on Jesus himself. We saw that last week. Who is he? But if that's who he is and we're his followers, what implications does that have for us? What I want to do with our text this morning is divide it into two parts. And I want to ask two questions and answer both of these questions from our text. So if you're taking notes, here's the outline. In verses 27 through 32, I want to ask this question. Who is a disciple of Jesus? And I think our text answers it. Who is a disciple of Jesus? And then the second question, how do disciples respond to Jesus? Verses 33 through 39. So there's the two questions I want to ask of the text, and I believe the text will answer who is a disciple of Jesus, how do disciples respond to Jesus. So let's begin with that first question. Who is a disciple of Jesus? Well, Luke answers this question by giving us the details of Matthew's calling to be a disciple. He tells us about Matthew's call to be a disciple, and he inserts this this story of Matthew having this feast at his house and all that transpired in light of that. See, Luke answers this question, who is a disciple of Jesus in an indirect way? See, if we were to go to one of the letters of Paul, Paul would just tell us straight up. But narrative doesn't work that way. Luke is telling us, he's answering the question emphatically, who is a disciple of Jesus? But he's doing it indirectly. 
But though he's doing it indirectly, his answer to the question is quite clear. So let me give you the answer, and then I want to spend a few minutes from this section showing you why that is the point that Luke is making. So who is a disciple of Jesus? Here's the answer. Those who've repented of their sins and turned to Jesus for salvation. Those are true disciples of Jesus. And that's the point Luke is making here. It's those who've repented of their sins and turned to Jesus for salvation. That, that's what makes someone a disciple of Jesus. And, and Luke it makes this point by telling us about this man, Levi, being called to be a follower of Jesus. So look at verse 27 with me again. It says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. Now here's what's taking place here. Jesus chooses this man named Levi, who just happened to be a tax collector. He chooses him to be one of his disciples. So the language of the text actually has a lot more intentionality than we, than we can see. We just see the word saw in our English and just think it means he glanced over. It's like he was walking by and saw Matthew and said, hey, come on. No, he saw this man. We don't know had he ever met him before, had they had conversations before. We don't know. But the emphasis is on Jesus said, you're going to be one of my disciples. It wasn't like Matthew was like, oh, this guy's really interesting. I've heard him teach. I've seen some of his miracles. Jesus says, no matter who you are, despite your despicable calling of being a crooked tax collector, you're going to be my disciple. Now, we must not think that what Jesus is doing here in calling Levi is the same thing he does later on in chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, when Jesus, after having many disciples, narrows it down to 12 special disciples. This isn't Jesus calling Matthew to be one of the 12. And why do I make that point? Because I think if we look at the 12, we can think, well, that was applicable for them. This passage isn't for us. But this is not Matthew being called to be one of the 12. This is just Matthew called to be a disciple. And notice the response. Luke tells us, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Notice, without saying it directly, indirectly, what did Luke just tell us? Levi repented. Where, where do we see that? Well, it says he leaves everything. He rises and follows him. Now, there's two things we, we need to understand there. He can't literally leave everything because we're just told in the next verse that he invites him to his house. And it doesn't say he rose and left everything. He leaves everything and he rises. The picture is he says, this tax collecting booth and all of its money, <laughs> I don't care. And he walks away from it. He walks away from what he had 
been doing. And why is that significant? Because if we recall earlier in Luke chapter 3, when John the Baptist began to preach about repentance and was baptizing people, remember what John said? He said to the crowd, verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. And then in verse 10, it says, and the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with them who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise, verse 12. Listen, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. See, here's here's what was going on at this time with tax collectors. Number one, they represented Rome, Rome the oppressors of the Jews. So to be a tax collector wasn't a favorable position. But the biggest thing is that tax collectors were given the authority to take taxes from their fellow Jews. And yet, in order to make a living, Rome may say you owe 10% and you say no, you actually you owe 13% because you got to pocket some. And they were crooked. And when some of these tax collectors came to John to be baptized, they said, what must we do? He said, stop doing what you were doing. And I think that's what Levi's doing here. The point that Luke is making here is really simple. Levi left his former way of life. He repented and began to follow Jesus. I actually believe we're to read verses 27 and 28 in light of Jesus' comments later on in verses 31 through 32. Do you remember what Jesus says later on in verse 31? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says in verse 32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I believe we're supposed to read verses 27 and 28 in light of what Jesus just said. And when we read it that way, here's the conclusion we come to. Levi was one of those sinners who saw how sick he was and turned to Jesus by way of repentance. That's how we're to read the story. Levi was one of these ones Jesus is speaking of when the Pharisees said, you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Levi was one of the men who realized how sick he was, that he was a sinner. And he turned to Jesus and repented. And notice what he does next. Verse 29 After repenting and coming to Jesus, we're told, and leaving, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Luke informs us that at some point after becoming a disciple of Jesus, notice what Levi does. He throws a huge party at his house in honor of Jesus. Don't miss this. It says he invited him. Look at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast. He doesn't just say he had a great feast and he invited Jesus. He throws this feast in Jesus' honor 
and it's a major party. We're told it's a great feast with a large company. This is the, this is the party of the year. There are lots of people, there's the best food, and it's all in Jesus' honor. There's just one little problem with this dinner party. Levi forgot to invite all his church friends. It's now filled with tax collectors and sinners. And because of the company Jesus associated with, company that wasn't always acceptable to the religious conservative leaders of the society. Notice what happened. He received harsh criticism for attending parties like this one. Now, it's important that we not miss this. The Pharisees could not have been at that party. Not only are we not told they were, had they been there, they couldn't have lobbed those accusations. So somehow, somewhere, they heard about this party, the the party of the year in Jesus' honor. He went to a party in his honor at whose house? Who was there again? And as you can imagine, this caused quite a stir. Look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and Sinners. Now, the Pharisees, who we encountered for the first time last week, they once again, as they did last week, and they will do in the the following stories, they once again voiced their complaints about Jesus and his disciples. And their complaint centers around who Jesus and his disciples associate with. That's that's at the heart of their complaint. Jesus, who you and your disciples associate with, we have a problem with. And just like we saw last Sunday, the criticism hinges around Jesus' identity. You see, if you get Jesus' identity wrong, then everything the Pharisees saying is true. We saw that last week. Do you remember last week? The paralytic is brought to Jesus by his friends because he needs to be healed. And Jesus doesn't say, you're healed, get up and walk. You know what he says? Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees in the room, rightly so, say, you can't say that. That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. See, their impulse wasn't wrong. Had someone says, "Your sin, I'm forgiving you of your sins, and they're not God, they are committing blasphemy. The the problem isn't in what they said, it's who they said it about. Because if Jesus really was God, and he is, they're accusing him of blasphemy, and actually they're committing blasphemy. And this week, they do something similar. They said, Jesus, if you're holy, why do you associate with the unholy? Well, the only way it makes sense is if you understand his identity. You see, if Jesus came to save sinners like a doctor seeks to heal the sick, then being around sinners in order to call them to repentance is in step with his mission. See, if you don't know who Jesus is, he's the physician for the sick, he's the savior for the sinner, 
then you say, what are you doing hanging out with sinners? But if you realize that's why he came, then all of a sudden it changes everything. Notice how Jesus puts it. Verse 32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus responds, actually verse 30, back in verse 31, Jesus responds to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus, overhearing their criticism, says, yeah, but do you not understand who I am and my mission? Because if you understand who I am and you understand my mission, then it makes sense that I'm doing what I'm doing, that I'm associating with who I'm associating with. See, it's imperative. Listen, it's imperative that we not misunderstand the statement that Jesus makes to the Pharisees here. When Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, Oh, how, how do we understand that? What does he mean by that? Was Jesus saying that the Pharisees were righteous? Is he saying, yeah, you don't need me. You're, you're the righteous. And is he implying that only certain kinds of people like tax collectors are sinners and in need of repentance? The answer is no. It's not what he's implying. The point he's making was this, that in the same way the sick go to a doctor, those who see themselves as sinners seek a Savior. And only those who see themselves as sinners seek repentance. And the Pharisees aren't in that camp. Not because they don't need repentance, not because they are righteous, it's because they don't see themselves as sinners. They think they're righteous, they think they're well, and the well don't show up at the doctor's office. See, Jesus isn't saying, oh, you know, you guys are good. He's actually showing them, no, you think you're good. I love this quote from Tom Schreiner, if I can find it here. Lizzie, could you grab my, my folder under my desk, or under my chair, and bring it up here really quick? I think I love something in there. Sure did. Thank you, guys, for your patience. Tom Schreiner, wonderful commentator on Luke. He, he, he makes a point that I think is worth Making Because when we understand Jesus' mission, it actually clarifies our mission. It clarifies what we're called to do as his people. Listen to what Tom Schreiner said. The temptation of the Pharisees was to emphasize purity in such a way that leads them to segregation and exclusion from others. This is a danger the church always faces. To maintain purity, we are tempted to separate from others and form our own, our own holy conclave untouched by the world. The danger on the other side is to associate with those in the world and say that love is acceptance without demanding any change in lifestyle. 
we see the perfect approach in Jesus Christ. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He loves them, extends grace to them, but at the same time, he calls them to repentance. As churches and as believers, we need both grace and truth, love and justice, mercy and righteousness. See, there are two dangers, two errors we must avoid as a church. Narrow exclusion, which is what the Pharisees were doing, even among their own Jews, they, too, too many people weren't worthy to be in their camp because remember, not only did they seek to, to follow the Mosaic law, they added to the Mosaic law. And if you were going to be a part of their camp, you had to do all the things they commanded you and demanded you to do. See, there was a, a narrow exclusion, and that's a danger. The churches can be built around all these other things and rules. And when people don't match that, they feel excluded. Or the other danger is broad inclusion. Well, Jesus just loves everybody. He loves sinners. So we don't want to offend sinners and tell them they need to change and repent and come to him. Sin is offensive. That word is offensive. The concept is offensive. So let's just welcome everybody and include everyone. And both of those are dangerous. So how do we avoid these two errors? Well, we preach and practice repentance. We preach repentance. We, we tell people, not out of a self-righteous posture as fellow sinners, who've met the great physician, we tell people they must repent of their sin. We call people to come to Jesus, to ask for forgiveness, to ask to be changed, to ask to be made new, and then to trust that God will do that. And not only do we preach repentance, we practice repentance. We're a community that that, that, that comes in and, and we, we talk about sin. We preach sin from the Bible. And not only do we preach it, but we are those who then respond to what we've heard. We confess that was sin. See, that's how we protect ourselves from either of these errors. Remember, those who repent of their sins are true disciples of Jesus which means that Christians or churches that neglect this truth will do harm to their witness. See, why do we gather here on Sunday morning? Is it because we all are homogeneous in the, all our beliefs and practices? No. What unifies us? We are sinners who have found a Savior or a Savior has found us. That's what unites us. Not our political persuasion, not our conservative values. Those may all be great things. What draws us together? 
we were once lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. That's what unites us together. So there's the first question answered. Who is a disciple of Jesus? Now here's the next question. How do disciples respond to Jesus? We know that there's this call to repentance, but, but how do we respond to Jesus as his people? Look at verses 33 through 39 now. See, the criticism of the Pharisees in this section, along with their criticism in the passage we just looked at, should, should make us pay attention to the way in which their criticism functions as what's called a literary foil. I don't know if you're aware of that term, but if you want to show who the main character is, you have to bring someone, another character along that exposes who this character is. If there's a main theme you want to draw out, what do you do? You, you, you bring up another theme that causes that theme to come to the surface. And so the Pharisees' criticism in both of these passages actually works that way. Because they criticize, it brings clarity to some very important questions. We, we can't say for sure whether these two events happened at the same time. It, 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 we're not told there's good reason to believe maybe in the same moment what we just read in verses 27 through 32 happened along with verses 33 through 39. There's good reasons to believe it was at a separate occasion. Here, here's what we need to know. Luke put them together. He's going to do the same thing next week. Whether they came together chronologically, they come together thematically. He takes two things that happen, these two events, and whether they happen simultaneously, he places them together because he says when you put them together, they expose something. They show us something. So what do these two stories back to back show us? Well, here's what we must understand. Repentance and fasting often went together in the Old Testament. So we just heard about repentance. So if you're wondering, why are they bringing up fasting? Because those often went together in the Old Testament. And we're told that the disciples of John and even the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. Therefore, the accusation by the Pharisees regarding the behavior of Jesus' disciples could be framed like this. Now, now that you have that backstory, here's what they're getting at. If the disciples of Jesus are sinners who've repented, then why do they feast instead of fast? I mean, Jesus, you say Levi was a sinner. You've come to call sinners to repentance. Okay, if he's a sinner who's repented, then why is he not fasting but feasting? Do you see how they're connected now? This doesn't make sense, Jesus. You're saying your, your disciples are those who've repented of their sins, but they're not doing stuff that looks like what repentance looks like. They're not fasting. They're attending parties. They're feasting. They're eating and drinking. Once again, this accusation by the Pharisees helps us gain clarity 
This helps us gain clarity about an essential aspect of our community as disciples. Let me put it in the form of a question. As disciples of Christ who repent of our sins and treasure Jesus as our Savior, what should be our response to Jesus? If we are people, true disciples who've repented of their sins and we treasure Jesus as our Savior, what should be our response towards him? Should it be solemn or celebratory? That's what this is getting at. You see where the criticism brings clarity? Their problem brought something into focus. They said, Jesus, your, your disciples, they don't do what all the other religious people are doing. Why is that? Because we think of repentance as being solemn. Your disciples, they look celebratory. Then Jesus speaks in verse 34 and clears up the confusion. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? This wedding analogy is so helpful. Jesus hears this criticism, and he asked them a question. Does the wedding party fast when the wedding is still going on? Imagine attending a wedding in which everyone wears black and acts like it's a funeral. Would that be fitting? The answer is no. Do you see the point Jesus is making? See, this wedding analogy is so helpful. Jesus is asking this question, why would my disciples fast instead of feast when the bridegroom is still with them? The Pharisees are saying, why, why do your disciples say they repent and they don't fast? Why would they? The wedding is still going on. I'm the bridegroom. I'm sitting in their midst. Why would they not have one big fat party? But that's not all we take away from this analogy. The answer that Jesus gives, it implies something. That fellowship with Jesus is the goal of repentance. See, what is the goal of repentance? Is it just to go to heaven? Just to be forgiven of your sins so you don't have to live with guilt? Or is the goal of repentance to have fellowship with Jesus? See, now we're getting at the goal. Why do we repent? It's not just to do some certain act so that God will see us and have mercy on us. We, we repent so that we can have fellowship with Christ. But there's more. 
This, this analogy shows us another thing. We begin to understand the atmosphere that repentance creates. Notice the kind of atmosphere of repentance. It's surprising. It's one of celebration. See, that was the problem with the Pharisees. They looked at Jesus' disciples and said, those guys are repentant? Where's the sackcloth? Where's the ashes? Where's the, oh, where, oh, how bad I am. They're not beating their chest. They're not doing any of those things. They seem happy. How could they be happy? How could that be repentance? And friends, Stopping and lingering here is so helpful because it reminds us that that the culture of repentance isn't one of sorrow, but of celebration. Think about what Jesus said in the parable in Luke 15, which we'll get to in the future. Remember, Jesus tells these three parables and he begins with the lost sheep. There was a shepherd. He had 100 sheep. 99 stayed with them. One of them went away. He goes and he finds this lost sheep and he rejoices. And then Jesus said, verse 7, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons in need of no repentance. See, we should celebrate. Feasting, as the disciples were doing in Luke 5, was a sign of celebration which is appropriate because they were with Jesus. But that brings up the question, what about when he's gone? Do we feast and celebrate after he dies? Well, Jesus answers that in verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, I don't think Jesus was just still kind of going along with a loose metaphor. I think he was, he was foreshadowing his own going away. He was saying, of course my disciples don't fast. I'm right here with them. But when I go away, they will. Now, is that implying that from the time Jesus died on the cross until the time he returns, we should be fasting as signs of sorrow and longing? Well, that's not a wrong thing to do, but I don't think that's the point he's making. Actually, most commentators understand this expression by Jesus to be referring to the time between his death and resurrection. Why? Think about how Luke's gospel ends. Jesus rises from the dead, and guess what happens? He goes and he eats with everyone, and there's joy. And you know how Luke's gospel ends? They watch him as he goes up in the sky, and it says they were filled with joy. That's so helpful for us because that means celebration should be the defining mark of our community. That should be the defining mark. Why? Because through our repentance, we have a relationship with Jesus. So when we come together, we are celebrating that our Savior died in our place and that he is alive. And every Sunday, that's why we celebrate the way we do. That's why we sing the songs we do. We come together to celebrate. Now, there's one last thing 
that Jesus brings up that he has to address in light of the accusation. See, once Jesus took on flesh and entered into our world, a new era had begun. And part of the accusation of the Pharisees is they didn't understand what time it was. They didn't understand a new era had begun. And once this new era has begun, the old ways of practicing one's faith was obsolete. So when they say, well, John the Baptist's and the Pharisees' disciples do this, he says, yes, they do, because they're still following after the Old Testament. But I am bringing about the new. And the way of doing it in the old doesn't match the new. And he illustrates that in verses 36 and 39. Now, for the sake of time, I don't, I don't want to read all of this again. And at first you might think, okay, th those, are, those are weird illustrations for us because they, they don't match our, our contemporary experience. But I, I think the point being made is pretty simple. I mean, think about what we see here in verses 36 through th 39. The word new appears seven times in those verses. And each time, it is contrasted with the word old. So Jesus is making a point that something new has happened and that that new thing means that we can't go back to our old ways. Both of these examples, Jesus used an old garment and putting on new cloths or having old wine in an old wineskin and putting in new wine that those two can't mix. You can't mix the old and the new. To do so would actually destroy both, and it would ruin the new. Now, what's Jesus referring to here? He's referring to the way things were done under the old covenant versus the way things are now going to be done under the new covenant, which he's inaugurating. See, his disciples, this is what Jesus is saying, his disciples cannot go back to their former way of worship because that would be mixing the old and the new. And that would not work. So one of the reasons that his disciples are feasting instead of fasting, Jesus says, don't you realize that something new has happened? Therefore, the new thing requires new practices. But then Jesus ends with this statement in verse 39 that could be, at first, a little perplexing. Verse 39, he says, No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. I, I think Jesus is giving a warning here. And I think he was actually putting his finger in the chest of the Pharisees and says, the problem you have is actually... You don't like the new. You're more comfortable with the old. There are some who don't like the new. In other words, some people are more comfortable with rituals and with formality because it gives them a sense of spiritual security. They believe that because I've performed certain religious acts, that makes me right with God. I think this is one of the many draws of Catholicism. 
If I do these rituals this way, show up to mass, pray these prayers, do these rosaries, take of Holy Communion, I'm forgiven. I'm okay. That's what a lot of people believe. We need to be aware of this particular danger, trading fellowship with ritual. Because at the end of the day, this was about Jesus having fellowship with his disciples, not about ritual. Listen to Tom Schreiner once again. Jesus has come with new wine and it doesn't fit the old wineskins. The important thing is not whether one is fasting, but whether one has the life that comes from Jesus. The Christian life may be wrongly explained to involve the keeping of certain rules. Such rules may even reflect God's will, but but the focus must always be on the joy of new life we have in Jesus, not the rules or the regulations. We can keep rules and regulations and end up being like the Pharisees, focused on external instead of internal. We may be deceived into thinking we love God if we refrain from doing evil externally. But meanwhile, our hearts are full of anger, revenge, lust, envy, and jealousy. We may think that if we engage in mandated spiritual practices, then God will respond accordingly and will revive his people. The Pharisees believed the very thing, and they missed out entirely when the fulfillment of the promise came. So we must not make this error of trading fellowship with ritual. And there's one last, one last danger here as I close. I want to point out because it gets at the context of this passage. What is this final danger? It's people pleasing. Why do I say that? The criticism of the disciples that was received in both accounts should remind us all that if we love Jesus and seek to follow him, we will be criticized for what we believe and how we live by people outside the church and inside the church. If you and I really do follow after Jesus, we will be criticized for following Jesus. The Pharisees were criticized for following Jesus. And we are the, the, the Pharisees criticized the disciples of Jesus for following Jesus. And if we follow Jesus, we could find ourselves experiencing the same kind of criticism from those outside of the church and even from those inside the church. Listen to these words from John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. These give me chills every time I read them. Many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it 
so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We learned from the book of Galatians, one of the things that caused that church in Galatia to be able to start going off the rails wasn't because of some initially heretical view of Jesus. It was persecution and criticism. You believe in Jesus, and yet you don't keep all the Mosaic law? And when they caved, it affected their relationship with Jesus. And there are many today that as they experience criticism, maybe it's you this morning, as you're experiencing opposition to your faith, is causing you to not stand out for your faith, and it's compromising your relationship with Jesus. So, what do we do? How do we end? How do we keep from, from doing these things where we don't end up like the Pharisees? We don't end up fearing man and losing fellowship with God. What do we do? I think we celebrate what Christ has given to us. Not, not, not only are we called to believe it, we're called to celebrate it. How often do you and I celebrate celebrate daily what Christ has done for us. See, that'll protect us from all of these errors if we daily re rehearse and rejoice in what God has done for us in Christ. That way when people say, you're not holy enough, you don't follow X rules, we say, no, I'm not holy enough. But you know what? My standing with God isn't based on what I've done. It's based on Jesus. And he was holy and perfect and righteous. And therefore, I am with him. And because I'm with him, I'm forgiven. We should be people who celebrate the gospel. And one of the ways we can celebrate the gospel, and I love this, out of all Sundays, guess what? It's the Sunday we get to come and feast at the table of the Lord. We get to celebrate what God has done for us in Christ through the bread and through the cup. That's the Lord's doing. We're just following along our preaching plan, and it falls on this Sunday where we're talking about feasting, and now we get to say, Lord, thank you for sweet reminders. Sweet reminders that help us celebrate what you've done for us, and by celebrating, it protects us. It protects us from all of the errors that we can face and we can lose sight of the one thing that matters, fellowship with the Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. May you write these truths now on our hearts and may you help us to experience what we just have been hearing and reflecting on. And now as we come to your table, may you meet us here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.